it's just good to be together as the body of Christ. It's interesting in the text that Scott read how the Jews, not the Christians, but the Jews in this story, this narrative, said these men, speaking of the believers, Jason and the other believers, have turned the world upside down. So that's the world saying that you Christians have turned the world upside down. In reality, uh, the world is upside down and the Christians are trying to turn it right side up. These men had come into Thessalonica and Berea for one purpose, to share the gospel, to set right what was wrong. And yet the world sees it completely different. The fact that we live in an upside-down world is not a new dimension. Its origins go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, a place of perfection. It was in this place of per perfect creation that man and woman chose to do life apart from God. I want to lead towards something that I want to share before we actually get to the teaching of our text, and that is because it fits. It's a nice, uh, it's a, it's a nice segue into the text. But th there's a reason why right now all over the United States there is an uprising and there is rioting and there are politics all over the place on both sides and people who are protesting and everything. There's a reason for it. And you say, well, I think I know what the reason is. And you begin to think about the different political parties and the conservatives versus the liberals and who knows where that leads you. But the reality is none of that is correct. What is correct is that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given the temptation by Satan to do life apart from God. You don't need God to do life. You can eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you'll know what God knows. You will be wise like God. You will be your own God. That is at the root of the problems that you and I are seeing today in the pathology of sin that's on the earth today. This was the same temptation that Satan used with Jesus himself when he went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and nights. Satan's temptation was this. You're the son of God. Therefore, act on your own as the son of God. You don't need to follow your father. Just go ahead. You're God. Do it your way. And Jesus' response in Matthew 4.10 was this. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This world is upside down because it has chosen not to worship the one true and living God and him only to serve. Even Bob Dylan wrote a song, and in the lyric he said, everybody's got to serve somebody. And everybody is serving somebody or something. But we've been given the responsibility as believers to, to go about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that can set right what is wrong. This world today doesn't want to hear that because the result of man's life apart from God has made him out to be his own God. I make my own choices. I do what I want to do. I don't worry about what other people think. 
I don't answer to anybody. Defund the police. Disrespect parents. Do away with the institution of the family as God created it. Let's start a sexual revolution that disregards everything now all the way down to the point of the roles that God has given man and woman. Today, if you state in the university that you, if you state that a woman is an adult female person, you'll be viewed as a chauvinist, a bigot. What's wrong with you? Get with the times. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived on this earth ever since the creation of the world. They're seen in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased or reprobate mind to do what ought not be. To be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those 
who practice them. I, for one, celebrate the courage of the five members of the United States Supreme Court who righted a wrong that was committed nearly 50 years ago. When 50 years ago, that Supreme Court left a 160-year precedent and decided to legislate that abortion is a national right, even though there was nothing in the Constitution to grant such a position. That was nearly 50 years ago. How long is 50 years in total disregard for the life that God has created? 60 million babies long. God forgive us for our rebellious ways. Forgive us for disregarding human life and treating our experience and, and treating our even our existence as if it came from us and not from you. A total disregard for you. Forgive us for believing the lie that we can be like you. Father, raise up a holy people a people who will stand for truth and stand against unrighteousness. A people who will put the gospel ahead of their political party. A people who will take serious the, com the command to go into the world, a fallen world, and proclaim the message of the truth of God's word. A people who will fear God and not man. God, make us real Christians, not just those who claim it by name without any conviction to follow the one true and living God. Make us like your disciples in the book of Acts who the scripture says they risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. Lord, change us today. We thank you for the mercy and the grace that you have shown us that we could be called children of God. That we were like the ones in Romans 1 that we read about. That was us. We're not different than anybody else. We're all sinners. But somehow the gospel, the good news of Jesus, reached us. And by the Holy Spirit, we were regenerated. And we give you thanks and praise. And now, Lord, may we live lives of appreciation and thanksgiving for what you have done in us and what you desire to do through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it that characterizes a person who is willing to set right wrong? What is it that characterizes a Christian who shakes up the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? From the narrative that we see that, that, that Scott read for us out of Acts 17, we see four characteristics that are provided through the life of Paul. And I think these characteristics are translatable to our lives. Let me just go ahead and give you all four. We probably won't get through all four. We'll probably cover two of them today if we can even get that far. But let's, let me give these to you. Four characteristics that provide 
what you need in order to turn your world upside down or really right side up with the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Number one, spirit boldness. Number two, scripture-focused. Spirit boldness, scripture-focused. Number three, salvation-driven. And number four, struggle-given. Spirit boldness, scripture-focused, salvation-driven, strife or, or struggle-given. The accounts of Paul's ministry at Thessalonica and Berea that Scott read for us today are very similar. They're parallel. And so let's consider these verses together. We'll just cover the first two today. Let's talk about spirit boldness because I believe God wants every one of us to be able to stand right now in this world. If you stand as a Christian, you will be persecuted. If you stand for Christ, my goodness, if you just stand for the unborn, you'll be persecuted. But if you stand for Jesus Christ, you will face persecution. And what you're going to need in order to stand is spiritual boldness. Verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. So we know that they went to Thessalonica, skipping over the first two towns. Why? Most definitely because there were no synagogues in the first two towns. So they go to the third town, and that is Thessalonica. And then they went to Berea. Look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Do you see any similarity in those verses? In both cities, the first place they went, they made a beeline for the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. No one will ever influence the world for Christ who lacks Holy Spirit boldness. It is necessary. It takes courage to stand for Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit will grant it to you when you walk by faith and you stand in his name. Paul reminded Timothy of that in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Courage and boldness are essential to the impact that we see happening in the early church in the book of Acts. And Paul is the poster child for spiritual boldness. Throughout his life endeavor to lift up Jesus, the name of Jesus, he was never deterred from carrying out his ministry, even when he faced great hardship and persecution. When he addressed the elders at the church of Ephesus, he summed up his attitude in Acts 20, verse 22 through 24. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit of God, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions are awaiting me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. I am not a God to myself. My personal rights take a back seat to God's rights over my life. 
He said this, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. By the way, if you're a believer, that's God's command to you to testify of the gospel of God. Paul's encounters at Thessalonica and Berea give us a vivid display of his remarkable courage. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had left Philippi in the wake of the riot provoked by Paul's healing of this this demon-possessed girl. And now leaving Philippi, these missionaries make their way southwest along the important Roman highway known as the Ignatian Way through Amphipolis and through Apollonia and finally to Thessalonica. And there's no indication that Paul and his companions preached the gospel in either of those other places. But when they finally hit Thessalonica, they made a beeline to the Jewish synagogue where they had been persecuted back in all the cities on their missionary journey. The same type of synagogue. They didn't run from the persecution. They ran into it. Because they carried spiritual boldness. They didn't take it personal when people hated them. Stop taking it personal when somebody lashes out at you as a Christian. Because you stand for truth. It's not personal. They hate God. They don't want to be under the authority of God. And you represent that authority. Come on, parents. You know what I'm talking about when you raise teenagers and they rebel. It's that they don't want to be under you. You can send them off to school and say, honey, here's what you really need to do in order to get the grade. And I'm telling you, if you'll do this, you'll get the grade. And they're like, oh, please stop. And then they get to school and their favorite teacher says the exact same thing. And they like, oh, my goodness, that's what I need. Yes, yes, yes. They're not rejecting you as a person. They're rejecting what you represent, authority in their life. This this is exactly what the world is doing. So they go to Thessalonica, which is the capital and the most important city in Macedonia. Macedonia, by the way, is Greece. It's a portion of Greece. In Paul's day, Thessalonica was a major port a very important commercial center in, in uh, Thessalonica. And, and the reason Paul made a beeline for the synagogue was because he was driven by a burning desire to see his fellow Jews saved. The same Jews who chased him out of every other city, who beat him up so bad in one city, in Lystra, that they thought he was dead. And yet he goes right back to his fellow Jews in Thessalonica, despite the fact that he suffered greatly by the hands of the very people he's trying to reach. Paul never lost his passion for trying to reach Jews with the gospel. Even on his first missionary journey, Paul faced great Jewish opposition on the island of Cyprus. He was opposed by the Jewish false prophet Bar-Jesus. And then leaving there, he went to Pisidian Antioch. Remember that? And we studied this already, where the Jews, the Bible says, quote, when the Jews saw the crowds listening to Paul preach, they were filled with jealousy 
and begin contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they were blaspheming. I mean, everywhere he went preaching the good news of Jesus, the Jews did not receive that message. Leaving there, he ends up coming to Thessalonica or to Philippi, and he spends time in Philippi helping the new church that he started, that God started through him. And then he, he finally ends up over in Thessalonica. And verse 10 says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Why? Because in Thessalonica, he was sharing the gospel and the Jews didn't like it. And they were out to get him. So he left by night. Where's Berea, this place that they went to? Uh, located about 50 miles from Thessalonica. And, and, and Berea was a much less important city. Cicero was quoted as describing Berea as off the beaten track. So this is not a special place at all, but it, they had a synagogue. The very thing that represents persecution in Paul's life, and he runs to it, a synagogue. He arrives. His, his love for his people and his God left him no option. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16 says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Being rejected is not an excuse for not speaking the truths of God's word, church. That's courage. So where does courage come from? Let me give you three places that you can find courage to stand like Paul and to make this world right side up. First, courage is built on faith. So the first thing you have to have to have courage is you have to trust God. Write that down. Trust God. David is the example. King David, he knew the importance of that truth. So he was often troubled and pursued by his enemies. He repeatedly had to rely on the promises of God to get him through his difficulties. Write this down, Psalm 27, verse 1 through 3. Let me read them for you. Psalm 27, 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? His trust was in the Lord. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. He put his trust in God. Put your trust in God. Know his word. Trust his word. Rely upon his promises. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, the scripture says. Believe that. Walk in it. Greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. If God be for you, what does it matter who's against you? The second thing that we need to have courage is the confession of sin. Who would have thunk it, huh? That in order to have greater boldness for Christ in this world, you need to be honest with God about your sin life. You need to come clean. In Psalm 7, that same David said, Oh, Lord, my God, I do not, I, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. 
Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Verse 10, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. David was willing to say to God, let my enemy overtake me if I've wronged him. That's how much David desired to have an upright heart before God. Oh, that God would want us to walk with an upright heart. Scripture says the steps of a righteous man or woman are ordered of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of God is against those who do evil. You can't expect God to hear your prayers, men. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. You cannot expect God to hear your prayers when you are not rightly treating your wife. That's what he says. If you don't honor her and cherish her as the weaker partner who is a joint heir with you, you don't have any more of God than she does. And if you disrespect her in the role that she has before God, if you disrespect her as your spouse, then don't expect God to hear your prayers. That's what Peter said. Third, another thing that will help us have courage so that we can stand for Christ, it comes from hope. We need to thank God in advance for the victory that he's going to give us. In fact, you already have the victory in Christ. Let me explain the gospel. If you're here today and you don't know the gospel, let me explain it to you. It's real simple. God created us after his own image. You have the capacity to choose what you will do, who you will serve. God's desiring that you will choose him. And his Holy Spirit comes after you to save you, to regenerate you. What is that all about? Well, God gave in the Old Testament the Ten Commandments and said to men, live by this. If you can live this out perfectly, then you are good in my eyes. Knowing that man could never live the Ten Commandments because God didn't give it to man to live it. He gave it to man to show him he can't live it. And then all of a sudden, so let me just qualify. So that means if you're a moral person and you're trying to live by the Ten Commandments every day, when you die, if all you have going for you is your morality, your goodness, you will die and go to hell. Not because God hates you, but because you chose your own way to righteousness. It's called self-righteousness. I was good in my own eyes. I lived according to what I think is important. And God says, whatever your righteousness is, it is nothing more in Isaiah than a stinking, smelly rag in my sight. It's important that we recognize that the reason God gave the moral law was that we would see that we could never live it. And therefore, through the law that God gave in the Old Testament, he introduces Jesus Christ as the Son of God 
truly God who created all things in the beginning. That's what Colossians tells us. Jesus was creator. Yet he comes in human form. He comes clothed in flesh and blood, and he lives the law to perfection. In fact, the scripture says, even he said, I am the fulfillment of the law. You could never live it. He knew you couldn't live it. That's why God sent him. That's why he came. He lived it perfectly. And then he goes to the cross and he says to the Father, according to the plan of God, he says, let me take on all their sins. The world who could not live according to the law, let me take on their sin. And all of our sins were put upon him. And the one who is righteous and just, the one who is innocent, took on the sins of the guilty. He didn't become sin in the sense that he sinned. He took on your sin and my sin and everybody's sin. And God looked upon him on the cross and God poured out what he had stored up for you and I. He poured out on Jesus. What is that? His anger and his wrath and his judgment against sin and the sinner. And Jesus, clothed in human blood, died. He shed his blood for us, and he died. And to prove that his death on the cross was sufficient to cover all of our sins, those who believe, to prove it, God the Father raised Jesus Christ the Son from the dead bodily. There's your proof that if I will put my faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I am saved. Scripture says it so many different ways. One way it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Do you believe it? Have you believed in Jesus as your Savior? If you have not, this is your day. This is your opportunity. Not because I'm doing something or saying something. Not because I'm going to ask you to raise a hand or walk an aisle. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. No work participates in your salvation. The only thing that saves you is God. So the second that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you, that you recognize that you're a sinner apart from him and you'll never go to heaven, but his work is sufficient to, to satisfy your sin debt before God. The second you get it and you receive that by grace through faith, you are saved it's a done deal bible says that if one sinner repents heaven rejoices a party in heaven can you imagine what that's like because you know every once in a while we can throw a pretty good party for a birthday or for a special occasion and yeah, they're nothing compared to what's going on in heaven when somebody is saved could you imagine the banner with your name on it in heaven? Wow. You say, yeah, because when I got saved, God wrote my name in the book of life. No, he did not. 
your name was written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world because God knew who would and would not be saved. Isn't that something? That's how awesome, that's how sovereign your God is. Courage comes from hope. In 2 Chronicles 20, Judah faced an invasion by a combined force of Moabites and Ammonites. It was King Jehoshaphat. Knowing Judah was powerless against her enemies, he began to pray for God's help. He then led his people out to meet the attackers. In verse 21 of 2 Chronicles 20, it says, it records that before the battle began, Jehoshaphat appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. They went out before the army, before the battle, and they gave thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. That's what they were singing to God. And in response, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that those enemies were routed, thanking God in advance. While you're still in a place of difficulty, while you're facing tough circumstances, thanking God, giving praise to God, it builds courage because you know that God can handle it. It's when we stop thanking God, when we stop thinking about God, when we stop singing songs of praise, and we just fill our minds with all the mess that we're in and all the problems and what we can't solve and all this kind of nonsense. The Bible says this. You need to set your mind on Jesus Christ. Things above where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. Get your mind off the things of this world. And all of a sudden, God begins to move, and your courage goes up. Your courage goes up. Well, let's go to the second thing. Not only is there spirit focus or spirit boldness, there's scripture focused. Verse 2, let's look at both what happened in Thessalonica, and then let's look at verse 11, what happened in Berea. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ. Interesting, he says the Christ. He didn't say Christ. The Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what he's saying. He's speaking to Jews, and he's telling them that Jesus is Messiah, that he would suffer and would rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christos, the anointed one. In verse 11, look at this. Now he's in Berea. Now these Jews were more no noble than those in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble? Because they received the word with all eagerness. They didn't question everything Paul said. They didn't refute what Paul said. They received his words. However, they only received it as they saw what he said in the text of the Old Testament scripture. They received the word with all eagerness. Look at this. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Oh, that's wonderful. The Bereans are Bible students. They are disciples. They're growing because they're in the word of God. The effectiveness of being spiritually bold is found in the truth of scripture. 
You cannot shake the world with opinions and personal thoughts. The world has its own opinions and personal thoughts. Everybody's thoughts and opinions aren't going to amount to a hill of beans after you're gone. So just go ahead and spend all your time and energy and blow hot air of all your opinions and your thoughts. Well, here's what I think, and this is what I, and this is what I would do, and I don't know about you, but this is what I've always thought about that passage. And here, <laughs> vomiting your nonsense all over people. When you're gone, none of that will matter. What matters is the truth of God's word. You want God's opinion. And that's the only opinion that you should be sharing with people. God's opinion. And you don't do it with arrogance because you're not saved because you're so great. You are saved because you are the least of all people. You are a sinner. And God graciously saved you. So you share it with humility, with brokenness. You share it hoping that the same morsel of bread that brought you into saving grace would also be a morsel that that person might take and eat and they too be saved by the regeneration of the Spirit. To have the right message but not the boldness, to proclaim it renders us useless. On the other hand, to boldly proclaim half-truths and error or our opinions can cause even greater harm. That's what, uh, that's what you build cults on, half-truths, error. We need to proclaim the truth of God's Word with boldness. Everything Paul said he spoke from the Old Testament Scripture so that when the Bereans looked it up, they went, yep, that's exactly right. He's not giving us his opinion here. He's just reminding us what the Scripture said. And it was the truth of God's Word that transformed them, that saved them. Some Christians believe it's all important uh, to not offend non-believers when I speak with them. So they focus their gospel presentation on what Christ has has to offer the sinner to improve his life in time and eternity. You don't really, what Jesus can do is make your life better. Your best life now. He's going to improve. He's going to make better. No, you are a lost sinner destined for hell. There is nothing good in you that could save you from your sins. You need salvation and only Christ can provide it for you. They wouldn't dare tell a Christian that. Speaking of confession and repentance is considered poor marketing. Don't ever use those words, confession and repentance. And don't talk about, you know, don't, don't talk about spiritual terms that people don't understand. Are you kidding me? You explain the scripture. That's what Paul was doing. He was explaining the scripture. You take the things that are difficult to understand and you make them easy. You make wise the simple. That's what Psalm 19 tells us to do. Make wise the simple. And by the way, there's no evidence in Scripture for this approach that we somehow only tell people the good parts about Jesus. No, you need to tell them the whole story about Jesus. You need to tell them the whole story about you. That you're a sinner and you need salvation. The true gospel must offend the non-believer by confronting him in his sin and his judgment. Nobody gets saved if they don't know that they're a sinner. And nobody gets saved unless they come to that offense. I am not in good standing with God. I'm at enmity with God. That's what the scripture says. A person who thinks that God's good with them just, and he's just going to make their life better, they're, they're going to die and go to hell. Jesus said in that last day, Matthew 7, 
in that last day, many will come to me and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many miracles? Did we not do all these wonderful things? And he said, I will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, those of you who practice lawlessness. Why would he say that, lawlessness? Because you built your own laws of righteousness, and you ignored mine. My laws of righteousness are you have to be as good as the Ten Commandments. You have to be perfect in keeping the law. And because you couldn't and you had faith to believe in my son who could, you have my righteousness. But if you try to stand in your own self-righteousness, depart from me. I never knew you. And then he goes in Romans 9.33, it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, you're supposed to stumble over the truth. What, what did Jesus say, or what did Paul say in, in 1 Corinthians? He said, For the Jew demands a sign. The Greek seeks wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew, that's a stumbling block. To the Greeks... That's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You don't stand on your opinion. You don't stand on anything but the truth of God's word. And the word of God does its work. And some seed falls on the pathway and it's taken away by the birds. Another seed falls on the, in the rocky soil and it never can get a deep root and it is taken away. And other seed falls in weeds and thickets because the people are so caught up in the worldly things that the word cannot take hold because of all the worldly behaviors and the worldly beliefs. But some seed, Jesus said, falls on fertile soil. And it springs up and brings life, some 30, 60, 90, 100 fold. You just be faithful to throw the seed. If some hits the, the path, if some hits the rocks, if some hits the, the weeds, that's okay. Just keep throwing the seed, broadcast it, because some of it's going to find fertile soil. But you're not giving them your opinion. There's nothing in that parable of the sower that talks about the sower. It shouldn't be called the parable of the sower. It's the, it's the parable of the soils, the different kinds of hearts that receive the seed. There's nothing about you, you, nothing special about you. You just throw the truth of God's word out there and let the Holy Spirit begin working in people's lives. Amen? Effective Christian witness includes being able to answer questions about faith. It does. Look at verse 2. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. We want to think that Paul just lectured them by reason. No, that's not at all what it means. The word reason there means a discussion. He allowed them to ask questions. He dialogued. They gave questions and he gave answers based on the Word of God. See, 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You should always be able to turn people to the Scripture to know the answers for the questions they ask. And when you come to a, a question that you can't answer, that's okay. Tell them the truth. I don't have an answer. That's a good question. I don't have an answer. If you'll allow me, give me some time, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to find the answer for you. Or I'm going to go to somebody who knows the word better than I, and I'll come back to you with an answer. See, that, that, that's it. You don't make up an answer. 
Okay, that's not going to do anything. That's not going to change them. The Word of God is what saves people. Amen? They come into the truth. So, verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In John 17, or John 7, 17, he calls for a willing heart. Listen to what he says. If any man is willing to do his will, to do God's will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. If you really want to know God, you'll know his word. You'll desire to know his word. You'll grow in his word. That's important. So you say, how can a Christian uh, know God's word well enough to use it effectively? Well, let me give you three things quickly, okay? Number one, the, the prerequisite for Bible study, you're not going to like this, is confession of sin. Going back to the same thing that brings boldness, you've got to be willing to confess your sin. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and then like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in your salvation you want to grow in the word set aside sin give it up confess it walk away from it repent of it it's impossible to study the scriptures profitably with an impure mind second another way bible study must be diligent you got to stay with it somebody asked me one time you know, how do you prepare a sermon? How much, how much time do you, do, what do you do? Is there a certain, like a, uh, is, wh how do you prepare a sermon? I said, you put your butt in the chair and you don't get up and you open up the Bible. That's the biggest problem with a lot of preachers today. They don't sit long enough for God to speak to them or to show them from the word. You got you to gotta do the time. You got to do it. You got to do it too. Get in the word. Be diligent with the word. Paul commanded his son in the faith, Timothy, he said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. By the way, guess how old Timothy was? He was a teenager. Young men, young ladies that are in this audience today, God expects you to be diligent in your Bible study. He believes you can do something with it. He believes in you. He has a plan for your life. And whatever he's planned for you to do, you can do it. But you better get in the Word. Start studying the Word of God. Be diligent. Lazy, unplanned, undisciplined Bible study will not produce a Christian who is mighty in the Scriptures, and you won't have boldness, and you will not turn the world right side up. You'll just sit there like a bump on a log, go to service on Sunday, you'll serve and not, or you'll sit and not serve, and you won't make an impact for the kingdom of God. Don't let that be you. Get in his word. Third, how do, you, how do you know God's word well enough to use it effectively with others? Believers must be committed to practice the truths that they learn. I'm going to share this from a pastor's view, okay? Uh, I retain far more in Bible study when I'm preparing to teach it than when I just sit down to read it. If you'll take time to study the Word for the purpose of the Holy Spirit opening doors for you to tell people what you've learned, you'll learn better. You'll retain more. 
It's while we're teaching. You say, yeah, but I'm not a Bible teacher. You might not be a Bible teacher, but every, everybody knows something that you've studied and learned from the Word. If you only know a little bit, take the little bit you know and share it with somebody who doesn't know it. And keep, keep pressing in the Word, keep going, keep learning more. Amen? That's how you do it. That's how we do it. James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't deceive yourselves. You got to go out. You got to live it. Don't just learn it. Live it. Amen? Well, let's stop here. I, I would love to share all four points, but I don't think we have time. And, and I'd rather come back next week when we're fresh. And we'll finish up the last two points. And we'll, uh, we'll keep moving forward in the book of Acts. Uh, so we're still going to be in verses 1 through 15 as we look at how Paul handled himself among the Thessalonians and also the Bereans. And we'll see the last two characteristics of somebody who is absolutely committed to turning the world right side up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that every believer in this church has that desire in their heart and that we would follow God in it. Amen? Amen. Father, this morning we've taken time not only to study your word, but also to let the word really begin to impregnate us where literally it becomes part of us and it changes us and it, and it comes out of us. People see the change in us because they see the behavior of our lives, how we've been transformed by the Word of God. But Lord, we also shared the gospel today. And there were people here who heard the gospel. I pray that those who heard and were not saved, but who heard it and believed it and said, yes, I received that. I believe that. I'm a sinner. I need salvation. And Jesus is the Son of God. And he died for me. And I want his righteousness to cover my unrighteousness. God, when they, when they come to that knowledge and understanding and they believe in you, the Bible says those who believe and behold the Son of God are saved. Oh, Father, I pray that that would be the case today, that salvation has occurred in this room, even this morning. We give you praise and glory and honor. Lord, help us to see these difficult days as opportunities to stand for Christ. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 God bless each of you. We have elders and prayer partners. They'll be up front. If you need prayer for any matter in your life, you come forward, okay? God bless you.